0: Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California.
2: Today um, I have the privilege of introducing you to a new um series, and, and I'm pretty passionate about this series. We're calling it Witness becoming a redemptive presence. And so here's uh, what that looks like. Witness, so over the next several weeks, all the way through Christmas, we're gonna be talking around this theme of what does it mean to become a redemptive presence and what does it mean to be a witness? And I introduced a little bit of the subject last week when I talked about evangelism. But over the next several weeks, we're gonna be looking at how we can engage in culture, a culture that is progressively moving forward past convictions, lifestyles, and beliefs that we might carry as a church. And so how do we actually engage culture as the church? So we'll look at consumerism. It's probably the greatest issue in the church today is American consumerism. We'll look at how our decisions and how our purchases make an impact on the globe and our entire world as as not only people are treated um, with in inhumane ways, but also the environment. We'll talk about racism. We're gonna talk about politics and how on earth do you talk about politics without losing yourself in conversation, whether it be anger or frustration or disappointment, watching the character of leaders leak out through the media. And that's what happens, right? Character leaks out, good and bad. We'll talk about um, money and how we organize and our resources and steward our energies. Uh, We'll talk about all sorts of things over the next several months. Does that sound okay? So today, just the question is really the introduction to the series is how do we engage in culture as the church? Welcome to the garden. We are a church. A church. That is what we are. (laughs) And when I say church, um, we all have different perspectives on what that word means, some of us in most of the world actually think a church is a building. It's just this brick. It's this church equals building. And that makes sense because the, where we get the word church it comes from a German word um, that has to do with church building. So I get that. Um, some of us think of church and we think of institutions. We think of dead religion. We think of our past experiences. We think of abuse. Um, the word church is so unhelpful today because we say things like, hey, I'm going to church. Or we leave something like an, an event that's been really well branded, and we, we grade how good church was or wasn't. Do you know what I'm talking about? Was the worship good at church? Was the speaker good at church? And that's just so unhelpful. But it's, it's part of the problem that we have to face as church. And so we are Church. And one of the things that we're going to talk about is where this comes from. So I want to define the word church, talk about culture, and talk about how we can engage it as an introduction. You guys with me this morning? So the word church uh, comes from a Greek word, ecclesia, and here's what it looks like in the Greek, ecclesia. And that, by definition, means assembly, gathering, community, or congregation. So it's a Greek word in the New Testament. And so it's gathering, assembly, congregation, community, um, but it means called out ones, So from the beginning, if we just say the church is just a gathering, we miss the the definition of what it means in Greek, which um, at its source means called out ones, which means it's a group of people with an identity and purpose. So church, to use our language, is a bunch of Jesus followers who have been called out of darkness into light for the sake of mission. So in other words, just off the bat, just to get this out of the way, you can't go to church. You are church. And I use this illustration, and some of you will get frustrated, but it's like a gang. You can't go to gang, you are the gang. Just sit with it for a second. But this is so important. Because when I talk about us becoming a redemptive presence as a church, engaging as a church, we have to get rid of all the baggage. And I don't want to say, well, we're not that kind of church. Like we, we, we present ourselves as up against something else. I want to paint the best picture that it just draws everyone in. We're not going to be known for what we're against. We're going to be known for what we are for, or better yet, who we are for. So church in Greek Um, means called out ones. It's a a group of Jesus followers, so you can't show up to it. You definitely can't shop it. Can we just, oh my Lord, that. Okay, Jesus. Okay, so thank you. Um, The language of church shopping just shows the very tip of this ugly nightmare of an iceberg that is the consumeristic, narcissistic way of existence that has crept into the very nature of the body of Christ. You can't shop it because it's the resurrected life of Christ in the world. You either are in moving that world to the new creation or you aren't. Are you with me? Okay, I'm getting pretty heated and I, I haven't even gotten to my notes. So, 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 um, so, but the word that we use in the New Testament for church, Ecclesia, has its origin in Hebrew. Um, and, and there's a principle of first mention. I just wanna teach you some things because in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna talk about how we read scripture as followers because it's the most subversive thing we can do in a society and culture that has moved beyond truth and reason. So how do we actually stand on truth then in a society that disregards statements of truth? Do you know what I'm talking about? So I want to talk about how we can read scripture and interpret scripture. So there's this principle of first mention or the law of first mention. And essentially it means this, that the way a word is first used in the scriptures or when you first find it it has massive implications for how it should be used or interpreted in the future. So, how it is first used when it's first mentioned. Law first mentioned, the principle first mentioned, has massive implications for how it will be used in the future. So, where we get the Greek word ecclesia comes from a Hebrew word that I want to show you. Does that sound good? So, here we go to uh, Exodus chapter 12. Go to, if you have a Bible, go to the book of Exodus. The first book of the Bible is Genesis, the second book is Exodus. So, if you open to the table of contents, just go to the right a bit. And um, the Exodus, we find the word um, edah, which we'll, we'll define in just a moment, used for the very first time which is where we get the word church in the in the new testament. But what you need to know about Exodus before I jump into chapter 12 verse 1 is Exodus is the defining narrative for the people of God, Israel. Exodus as a book is the defining story for where the Israelites received their identity and purpose in the world. And so as we as we read this one small passage, it's very obscure, you have to recognize that the entire book of of Exodus is the narrative of the Israelites, which is so important. And the story begins in Exodus 1. Israel is enslaved to an Egyptian empire. And they are being oppressed, making bricks seven days a week. And at the top of the Egyptian empire is a guy named Pharaoh. And Pharaoh represents the incarnation of the sun god, Ra. And he was seen as the, son of this, uh, the incarnation of the son of God, or the, uh, sorry, the sun God, Ra. And uh, the, he was the representation of that deity for the rest of Egypt. And so you have a people selected by God to represent God on earth, chosen to be blessed above all the other nations to be a blessing to the world as slaves to this Egyptian foreign rule. And they cry out in slavery to a God that is far away in Exodus 1 or um, in the beginning of Exodus, where are you? They cry out, they cry out to God, make an appeal. And God hears the cries of the oppressed. And there, God sets on a mission to free the nation of Israel from the oppression of an empire. And he sends a man named Moses and Moses becomes a messenger and he confronts the powers of Egypt, the empire, Pharaoh, and says, let my people go. And then he brings about plagues. God brings plagues. You've seen these, the Charlton Heston film, right? Or maybe you saw um, Moses, the animated feature, or, or any of the other films that we have. Maybe you've read it. Great. Um, so in the story, you have these plagues. Now, what's fascinating about the plagues is that they are systematically attacking the gods of Egypt, one by one. So when you read about the plagues, it is Yahweh confronting the gods of Egypt. Now, what are the gods or idols used for in an empire? Idols are used by people in an empire to control, manage, and organize their life. Just let that sit for a second. Idols are used by people in an empire to control, manage, make sense, or organize their everyday life. So one by one, the plagues confront and humiliate the Egyptians. And then we get to chapter 12, and it's the last and final plague. This is the plague that's going to set the people of God free. Remember, this is the narrative that they find themselves defining themselves out of. And in Exodus 12, we read about this Passover meal where God sends the final plague. And what is the final plague? To kill every firstborn male, animal and human. Why? Because the God that Egypt worshiped was Ra. And Ra's incarnate figure was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's lineage was the son of God, his son. Are you with me? Do you see the parallels of what's going on? So Egypt was set another plague against the God that they worship, and Yahweh brings this, this divine punishment and judgment over Egypt. And um, for the last 10 plagues or so, I forget how, how many plagues are there. Do you guys remember? 12 plagues? You're keeping track. Okay, good. Um, They've been exempt from having to do anything. So the, the, the Israelites, just, they just get to go about their merry business and, and the plagues attack everyone else, all the Egyptians. But on this one, they have to participate. And this is what God says. This is the way that they have to participate. Exodus 12, verse one. Um, and this is all about the church. So stay with me. Uh, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So The event is so significant that it marks the beginning of a new year and a new calendar. Are you with me? Serious stuff going on. And look at what it says, verse three. Tell the circle whole community, Edah, of Israel, that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each person will eat. So he gives this provision that there's gonna be this meal. You're gonna sacrifice the lamb. You're gonna eat this meal in a particular way. And then it says this, verse 12. On that same night, the night that you eat this meal, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn on both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. The blood, so you, you take the lamb's blood and you put it on your doorpost. It says, "The blood for you on your houses, where you are. I'm sorry. The blood will be a sign for you on your houses, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, which is where we get the word Passover. No destructive plague will t- touch you uh, when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So the story of the 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 moment of liberation is Passover." where the Egyptians are freed. And this word comes out of nowhere, edah. Edah, tell the whole edah, the community, the assembly, the congregation. Would you go to that? This is the definition of edah. Um, Community, congregation, assembly. Does that look like Ecclesia? Yes, the rabbis define the word in a unique way. And so the Hebrews carried edah every time they heard or read in the Old Testament the word EDA. It's connected to this story of God's abundant liberation and provision over their life. The word they carried that EDA represented was witnessing body. The people of Israel gathered as Adah, a witnessing body to the liberation of a God who liberates those who are oppressed. Are you with me? It was never about the congregation of people. It was about the kind of people who experienced, who witnessed a God who liberates the oppressed. And when you witness a God who liberates the oppressed, it not only defines who you are and your identity, but it sets you on a trajectory to become the kind of person that represents the God who liberates the oppressed. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. So do you see that when we use a word like going to church, it loses its meaning? Because we are a people that have been defined by a God who has liberated us, who has set us free, who has made us his treasured possession. So the story of Israel is they're set apart. They become a Daw, witnessing body. And Exodus 19, it says this. um, As the story of Exodus continues, as they begin to define their, um, their... Here we go. As they begin to define who they are, it says this, God calls Israel and he says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So in other words, you will represent me to all the other nations and you will represent all the other nations to me. Does that sound familiar if you were here last week? Like a mirror. And so the purpose, the identity, the mission is all wrapped into one thing Israel knows as Edah. And so the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, the law, not committing murder, not committing adultery, not coveting, these are all ways of existence to reflect the, uh, the God who liberates the oppressed on earth. Are you with me? And so Israel is given this covenant, this great relationship with God, and they are to live this way, and they do in the wilderness, and then they enter into the promised land, and in the Old Testament, what you see is a group of slaves that gain territory and land and begin to prosper, and look at what happens. Over time, this is the entire Old Testament, Israel has kings that rise up, some follow him, most do not, follow God, some, most do not, and as they become more and more successful, they build a temple, they build palaces, they build um, military outposts in other countries. Solomon becomes so successful, he becomes an arms dealer and sends off chariots and horses to the rest of the world, becoming an arms dealer to the other nations. And the queen of Sheba comes and observes the success of Israel and says, I know why you've been so successful. You are supposed to maintain justice and righteousness. Israel is to represent God to all the other nations. And in their success and prosperity, they forget who God was. Because as one author, Walter Brueggemann says, prosperity breeds amnesia. Again, we're talking about the Old Testament here. We're not talking about the New Testament and the church, are we? Well, this is what happens. Jesus comes onto the scene and Jesus, and if you read the Gospels, it's so clear. He is fulfilling all of what Israel was called to fulfill in the Old Testament. He is the faithful Jew. Jesus takes on the vocation of Israel to be the representative to all the other nations. And in his life and death and resurrection, he fulfills the vocation of, it, the, of Israel. And so Jesus comes onto the scene and, um, and he creates this community around him, 12 tribes, which represents the 12 nations. Does that make sense now? And he says that after he's raised from the dead, he will send his spirit. I want to go back to last week's passage, Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, verse eight. And look at the word that Jesus will use. He says, um, verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus commits his disciples to be, uh, he, he, commend, or he commissions them to go into the, all the world and making disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He commissions them in Acts 1. He says, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be witnesses. And we talked about this a lot last week, but I wanna just reframe last week. The word witness in Greek is where we get the word martyr, which means someone who lays down their life. Another definition of witness is one who testifies or one who brings testimony. Another definition is one who affirms the truth or brings facts to a case, story, or event. I like that. A witness is someone who affirms the truth or brings facts to a case, story, or event. I'd like to say that a witness, someone who's filled with the power of God through his Holy Spirit, commissioned into the world, is someone who uh, you become, a witness is a person who affirms truth, beauty, life, goodness, justice, righteousness, and resurrection of Christ in their everyday ordinary life. Remember we talked about it last week that a witness is someone whose life simply points to the reality of Jesus Christ. The music that they're listening to is turned up really loud. And other people wanna hear what you're hearing. And our job is less about talking about music, less about talking about the tone and the beat, and more about helping people hear the music that we're listening to. Are you with me? This is what we talked about last week with witness. Witness is someone who becomes so irresistible and attractive that people want to become like them in everyday ordinary life. So Jesus says that the church is to be witness to the world. And if you go back to Adah, that makes sense because the community of God is designed to be the witnessing body for the rest of the world. And then Jesus says in Matthew five, if you have a Bible, let's just look at this. Again, this is just introduction. I'm just trying to define the word church for us, if that's okay. Matthew chapter five, this is what Jesus says in the um, Sermon on the Mount, verse 13. And what you need to know is this, this is, he, he takes something that was designated for Israel. These two illustrations are used for the vocation of Israel to the nations. He says to the, his followers, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus takes the vocation of Israel and says, this is for my church. Salt, it's probably nothing more appropriate than what we need now as we engage culture as the church. Salt is not just for bringing out the best flavor, although that's interesting, isn't it? To bring out the best of culture and society. To bring out the renaissance was the example the church was at the center of an artistic revolution music revolution it was bringing out the best of culture but salt in the first century had to do with preservation preserving foods and meats and if you think about our task as the church to be salt it's to preserve all that is good and true and beautiful and just in culture and society And light, obviously, to reflect God's light into darkness. So our task, Jesus commissions us, is to be salt and light wherever we go. In other words, to become the kind of redemptive Movement that Jesus intended his church to be a witnessing body, a community of people formed by the liberating power of God, set free for a mission and purpose in the world. Don't, don't ever say, Let's go hang out at church. Don't ever say, Church was good today, because that implies that you had a part in the gathering or service. The church is us, we are church moving this mission forward as a redemptive presence, ushering in the kingdom of God with every thought, action, deed, prayer, lifestyle, purchase. The kingdom is breaking in whether we want it or not. We can participate in this new creation or we can sit back and say, it was good today. So what is the church? The church is a witnessing body. Set apart for a mission. It's brothers and sisters, people that have gathered around the confession that Jesus is Lord and set into the world to continue the project that God started in the resurrection of Christ. So, what is culture then? How do we engage then in culture? We live in a society and culture that has a particular set of values, it has a vision. A particular life that's moving forward. And sometimes this culture opposes the very life, life, and essence, and values and vision of the kingdom of God. So, culture, by definition, is simply the beliefs, the customs, the arts, the way of thinking, the way of life of a particular society, group, place, or time. We live in a culture. We're swimming in culture. Our culture and society, if we were to identify, Either the idols or the shape it bends towards. It bends towards self-focus. It bends towards consumerism and materialism, which I will argue is a form of spirituality, not only in the world, but in the church. It bends towards overconsumption and indulging in food and beverage, drunkenness and entertainment, addiction, relativity, and disoriented relationships. We don't even know how to have meaningful relationships in our culture and society. They're being fractured left and right. There's a myth of nuclear family. There's all sorts of issues that we face. We're overwhelmed by daily forms of propaganda offering us a competing narrative to live by disguised as advertisement. And these narratives are rooted in scarcity and inadequacy. And the solution they provide is for you to consume more more food more drink more electronics more information more music more clothing more cars i look back at daniel in the book of daniel where israel is judged and they're sent into exile because they don't represent god they build their empires and god crushes the empire that they become be, they became became excuse me and the story of daniel is how one jewish little boy remains pure and true to the israelite way the way of yahweh And he redeems almost an entire culture or he offers a redemptive past. He was a creative minority in a larger Babylonian empire. And Daniel faces all sorts of things. He faces a culture of indulgence and drunkenness. And Daniel challenges the culture through moderation and sobriety. A culture of idol worship, Daniel offers serious devotion. In a culture of immorality and sexuality, he offers purity and holiness and restraint. In a culture of fear and anxiety, Daniel lived a life of prayer and peace. In a culture of myth and massive information overload, Daniel lived a life of wisdom. There are other ways to live in our culture. We have to learn how to engage our culture that is radically shaping our decisions our attitudes our habits our lifestyles our purchases on a daily basis they are training us on how to live and we need to train the world on how to live are you with me am i making the case so how do we engage in culture as the church well we could do this we can avoid it you know what we could just all just go to the big bear mountains and create a commune forget social media and just don't you know don't read the news, and just, that's what people do. We could take it over, which is triumphalism, like Constantine. We'll just, we'll just beat them at their own game and we'll make the best Christian music label ever. Uh, <laughs> right? As long as our clothes have like a cross on it or an igthus, then it's good, you know, or whatever it is, that's not the way either. It didn't work. That's the, the way of empire. You, we could just embrace it. We could just embrace it. And I'd, I'd wanna argue that this is what we've done as a church. We've embraced it. Um, I think one of the greatest problems is, is the American church. And listen to me just one more, for a few more minutes, I'm gonna end this. The American church is so largely enculturated to the American way of life, which is the way of consumerism. And as a result, the American church has very little power to act or live differently. And so the only alternative is to redeem culture. It's to engage culture. It's to enter into culture and to live in such a way that we conform, uh, that we aren't conformed by the powers of our culture, but we live an alternative lifestyle that is so compelling that we transform the culture that we're in. This is what we were designed to be. Not standing on soapboxes, telling people what's going wrong, but rather entering into their pain and sitting next to them saying, I know this hurts, but this isn't the end of the story. Redeem culture. Walk with people, live with them, bleed with them, incarnate the message of Christ in your life and family. One professor, James Davidson Hunter, a professor of religion and culture and social theory, in his book, How to Change the World, uh, he offers a different paradigm for culture transformation and engagement. He calls it faithful presence. And I wanna use this loosely over the next seven months. Um, and I'm call- calling it redemptive presence. And he says faithful presence is not about changing culture, let alone the world. It instead, it emphasizes the cooperation between institutions and individuals working for the common good and making disciples. And this is what he says, look, If there are benevolent consequences of our engagement with the world, it is precisely because it is not rooted in a desire to change the world for the better, but rather because it is simply an expression of desire to honor the creator of all goodness, beauty, and truth, a manifestation of our loving obedience to God and a fulfillment of God's command to love our neighbor. In other words, what he's simply saying is, look, if we live our lives in such a way that transformation of culture happens, it's because it's a byproduct for our love for God. So some of you are paralyzed by the fact that I'm saying, let's go into the world and bring life. Let's go into our city and bring life. What I want you to do is love God so much in your life that it oozes out of you. And you, are, you become also intentional though. So we'll talk about this next week. That it's not just, okay, I'm reading in my car private faith with my Bible. And for those of you that think the gospel is not political, you're completely wrong. And if you think pastors shouldn't be speaking out about racism, uh, about injustices, about politics, you're also wrong. The gospel is very political. To say Jesus is Lord in the first century meant Caesar is not Lord. It was a counter movement. And Jesus offers a better way. So anyways, that's another just little side note came out of there. (laughs) Thanks for sending those those. Facebook posts to me, appreciate it. Um, but I am gonna speak politically. In other words, uh, we live, okay, so we, what do we do then? How do we engage? Well, the, the truth is we just engage as the church. We just, let's just be the church. And I'm not saying let's not be that kind of church. I'm saying let's actually be a biblical church. That's it. Let's just be the church that we read about that forms its identity from a liberating God who loves us and set us free and gave us grace and then empowers us with his spirit. His very life, the life that created all things is within us. Go into your workplaces with that creative power. And when you're confronted by the powers, do not be surprised. Because every time you bring life, truth, and justice, you will be confronted by the other kinds of powers in the world. Just be ready for the fight. Because it's not really a fight. (laughs) It's like a kid with a squirt gun and the ocean, okay? It's like, (laughs) who's going to win? The ocean. That's God who created all things and is renewing all things versus the powers in this world that clearly are doing damage, but we know where the story is going. Are you with me? So we can redeem culture as a creative minority, a redemptive presence, a creative resistance to the ways of empire. We can redeem culture a million different ways, a million different moments, in a million different days of our life. Every small act of obedience, every kindness that was said or unspoken, every prayer that you have uh, has the power to change the world. Your daily purchases can bring massive change on a global scale. Your attitude, your hospitality, your moderation, your purity, your lifestyle, all points to the redemptive work that God is trying to bring about to the entire cosmos through your daily, everyday, ordinary life. You are a redemptive presence to be reckoned with. You are a redemptive presence to be reckoned with. People won't even see it coming when you live the way God intended you to live. So I challenge you, challenge the empire we live in. Don't don't listen to the garbage that's out there. Offer a better way. When they say, is it this or this? Say, Yes. When they say, it's gotta be this or this, and you say, yes. Show them the other way. Walter Brueggemann says that the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. We need to have a great imagination. We need to wake up a community, a city, with the imagination that there can be another way. And there is another way. Just look at our life. Look at us, church. We must offer an alternative community, alternative life, alternative belief system. We must simply be the witnessing body. And so, the next several weeks, we're going to talk about, next week, I'm going to talk about true cost and our decisions and actions and how. There is a crisis in the world similar to a slave movement in the early 1800s and 1700s. And it has to do with we can change it by how we choose to engage in this world through what we purchase or what we don't purchase. We're going to talk about the most subversive book of all time, Scripture, and how we can understand and read Scripture on a daily basis. We'll talk about politics and empire, we'll talk about power and policy. We'll talk about consumerism as spirituality. We'll talk about minimalism as an alternative lifestyle to the way of consumption. We'll talk about money and worry. We'll talk about the power of presence in a distracted world. This is all over the next several months. And this is what we're called into as a church. So would you join me in this new adventure? And I'll close with this quote from Rodney Stark, the great sociologist who said this. As he, before he was not a Christian, he was a sociologist that looked Um, at at the movement of the church and how it survived. He looked at within the first century. He analyzed the survival and growth of the early church. It didn't make sense, but this is his observation of the church, and I love it. It, Let this be our goal. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to misery, to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as as uh, as as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife and racism, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. And look at this. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture, capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Can that be our prayer? A new culture capable of making life in this first 21st century more tolerable. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Garden Church podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.